Keeping Up With Claxon, the podcast to help you build better communications. The show is hosted by Neil Conchi, bringing you useful tips, fascinating guests, and great ideas to help you streamline your internal communications. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and contribute to the conversation using hashtag Keeping Up With Claxon. Welcome to the first episode in what we hope will be a very informative series to our listeners. Uh, we're going to take you on a journey, interviewing some of the best in the business, providing you with some helpful tips in the major incident and business continuity field. My name's Neil Conchi, and I will be your host for the series. I am the sales manager at Claxon. Um, we're on a mission. We are on a mission to eliminate the anxiety associated with sending vital communications during adverse events. And today, I am very excited to be joined by John Sansbury. Hello there, John. Hello, Neil. How are you? Uh, very good, thank you. Very good. Um, so I'm going to actually introduce John. He's far too humble to do himself justice. Um, so if I may, he's a best-selling author and recognized ITIL advisor. John runs his own consultancy training company, Infrasystems Development Limited, and has over 50 years experience in the IT service management and ITIL. He has helped optimize over 200 service desks and is even ranked number one in the world for the number of people he has trained in ITIL Foundation. So very excited to have you here today, John, and for you to share some of your wisdom. Did I do your experience justice? Thank you, Neil. I think you, uh, I have no issue with any of that at all, but it, it sounds almost arrogant, but thank you. That is a <laughs> statement of fact. Fantastic. So, um, so John, if it's okay with you, um, could you just provide us with a very quick overview of ITIL? Yes, ITIL, and I've been involved with it since the start, was launched in 1989. It actually pre-existed as GITIM, Government Information Technology Infrastructure Management, but was launched as ITIL, uh, which used to stand for the Information Technology Infrastructure Library, in 1989. And it was based on a set of books that essentially was commissioned by the government at the time, the Office of Government Commerce, uh, what we now know as the Cabinet Office, in order to understand what worked well in the delivery and management of IT services. And so it was a body of knowledge that the government commissioned uh, in order to understand and, and deploy good practices in what we now know as service management. It's been going there for, for uh, 30 odd years and it's in its fourth iteration as ITIL 4. Nice, thank you very much for that. Um, so let's, um, let's jump straight in. Um, we have today, we're going to talk about um, the five common pitfalls that organizations often make. Um, and number one is an inadequate incident categories. So if you'd like to fire away, John, that would be fantastic. Yes, thank you, Neil. This is something we find very common amongst our clients. Categorization of incidents is there alongside prioritization. Prioritization is there in order to ensure that we deal with the most important ones first. Categorization is an often underused characteristic of an incident and essentially is there for two purposes. The practical purpose is to ensure that with the right category, we assign the incident to the right team for resolving uh, beyond the service desk. So it's to assist the service desk in identifying the team to whom the incident should be escalated. And uh, a slightly worrying statistic is that in our experience, 70% of initial categorization is wrong. And as a result of that, the incident gets assigned to the wrong group 
and then what happens is it bounces. It bounces either between one group and another, or it goes from the service desk, perhaps to the network team, which is the most common one, and then back to the service desk and then to the application team. So the, the practical challenge is uh, working on the incident as quickly as possible, because that's the objective, by assigning it to the right specialist group. The, therefore, the best practice associated with categorization is to provide as much advice and guidance to the service desk on what the category might be in the first instance to get it right as, as, as often as they can. And without going into detail, the most effective way of doing that is to have an effective configuration management system. The other reason for categorization is for analysis by problem management in terms of root cause analysis. And this is where, of course, if the initial categorization is wrong, uh, they will struggle. And so the advice on dealing with that is always validate the category at record closure, i.e. when the incident's been closed, then we know what the category was. So that will help in that respect. But the other issue with categorization is either having too many categories or having too few categories. If you've got too few categories, then you don't collect enough information about the possible root cause and problem management will struggle. If you have too many categories, then uh, I'm going to give you an example of, of what happens in that situation. So one of our clients I went to the service desk had 400 categories. And I thought that sounds a little bit of overkill. So I said, can you show me the analysis of those categories? And if I remember rightly, something like 92% of those incidents were a single category. And it's a little bit of a quiz question, but uh, that category was other. And the message here is if you have too many categories, you can't expect the service desk to select the right category in a meaningful way in the short time they have. Uh, and so the consequence is they pick the top one or other. Uh, so we need enough categories. We need categories at multi-level. You don't really want, you know, even 100 separate categories. It's much better to structure these as level one categories, level two categories, and level three categories, where level two is selected based on the level one selection and level three based on the level two selection, and for those to be validated at closure. That's what we consider to be good practice in this area, but one of the bigger challenges that organisations have. Nice. Um, thank you, John. Very informative. I'm quickly interrupting this podcast because I wanted to let you know about something really important. You can now eliminate your communications anxiety with the help of Klaxon, the platform that allows you to send targeted multi-channel notifications to your team in just a few clicks. Learn more about Klaxon and schedule your personalized demo at klaxon.io. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, so number two, uh, a lack of incident costing. Thank you, Neil. Yes, this is a topic close to my heart because I don't think many organisations, if any, uh, have any real handle on how much major incidents cost them. Two reasons for doing this is to raise the business awareness of the incident cost in order to focus on rapid resolution, but more importantly, to justify investment in problem management to prevent these incidents from occurring in the first place. So the four costs of incidents in ascending order. The first cost is the internal rework. And this is the amount of time and effort uh, and therefore money spent by second line support teams on managing incidents beyond the service desk. Now, this uh, typically is understated. And the challenge is that second line support teams, their primary objective is not managing incidents. 
it's in fact running projects and doing enhancement work. So anything they do to manage incidents is a distraction from that time. And when we ask them to uh, put a figure on how much time they spend in a week typically managing incidents, the answer is a very worrying 80%. Now, if I can do the mental arithmetic, if you had 100 people in the IT department and 80% of their time, or sorry, 100 people in second line support, and 80% of their time was spent on fixing incidents, that's equivalent to 80 FTEs. And the average cost of employing a second line support person is around about 50,000 a year. If you multiply that up, you get around 4 million a year. Uh, it's the hidden cost of internal support for incidents. But that's the lowest cost. The second lowest cost is the lost user time. And we can put a cost on that as well. But in order to be able to do so, we need to record how many users were affected by an incident. And most organisations don't. What they do is say it was more than five or more than ten, and therefore it was a priority one. If we take a major incident, then typically you might have a thousand users affected. And if those thousand users are affected for, let's say, four hours, then you've got 4,000 lost user hours. Now, you can again equate that to money by saying those users are typically costing around about 50,000 a year to employ. So 4,000 hours, if we divide that by uh, 168, which I can't do, but that's number of weeks, and then multiply it up by the salary, again, you'll find it's tens of thousands, if not millions of pounds of lost user time. Slight challenge in that they may not be completely disabled, they may be able to do something, but nonetheless, it's another hidden cost and the second highest, second lowest cost of incidents. The third cost is what those users would have been doing with their time. And of course, in any commercial organisation, they would have been generating revenue and profit. And so, although it might be difficult to say what the lost business was as a result of users not being able to work, um, I can give you a for instance. We worked with a logistics organisation that was had it, or, or had a contract to deliver uh, car components, automotive components, to the Ford production line in Spain on a just-in-time basis. If, for whatever reason, and typically because of a major IT incident, they missed a one-hour window to deliver those components, there was a million euro fine. Wow. So that, that can be the cost of, of lost user time. The fourth and the highest cost an organisation may have to bear is reputational damage. And there's been three very well documented cases um, in the recent, or at least in the last 10 years, about organisations that have suffered major reputational damage as a result of a major IT incident. The first is um, BlackBerry, which 11 years ago uh, suffered a major IT incident, which they reported as being uh, not major, since fixed and not affecting everyone, which uh, wasn't actually true and went on for a total of four days before it was fixed. Uh, and that was only a few months before the iPhone came out. And as a consequence of that major incident, they virtually went out of business. Okay. The second uh, circumstance was with Royal Bank of Scotland, who suffered a major incident in the uh with their scheduling that managed to wipe out the live database and the test database at the same time and it was it took them four months to recover from that with massive impact on their reputation and the more recent one about three years ago was with tsb 
where they sought to build their own systems independent from their ex-parent Lloyds Bank. Uh, what they didn't know or, or hadn't recognised was that the development activities were around about seven months behind schedule. And as a result, they took an executive decision to go live before the systems had been fully tested. Uh, needless to say, they crashed and they did some investigation. And I believe I'm right in saying put a figure of something like 300 million on the cost of that incident through a combination of rework, uh, lost uh, revenue from customers who left and lost opportunity revenue from customers who would otherwise have switched into TSB. So this is why uh, the risk is stating the obvious. Incident costing is a terribly important technique, but not always easy to do, but that doesn't, doesn't defend not doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some very large numbers in there and, um, and many different avenues where revenue can be lost. So yeah, I can see that being a big pitfall. Um, number three is not having a shift left policy. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Uh, a lot of people don't even recognise the term shift left. It comes from, if you imagine uh, in a diagram, then an incident is received initially by the service desk. So if we take the service desk as the initial recipient, uh, what they will do if they can't fix it is move it to second line support, move it to third line support and even third party support. Shift left is moving that resolution back downstream. So it's always looking wherever possible to move resolution back down to the service desk and potentially self-service. The challenge is that um, there's reasons why the service desk doesn't resolve more incidents, but none of these are insurmountable. And what we find when we analyze these causes is the main three reasons why the service desk isn't able to do a higher fix rate is firstly because they don't have time. Well, that's simply a resourcing uh, solution. Secondly, they don't have the expertise, which of course is a training solution. And thirdly, they don't have the level of authority, maybe as systems administrators, or all of which can be managed. And so why would you do this? Well, firstly, because as we said earlier, second line support is not, or should not be focused as a main priority on fixing incidents. So they should be doing all in their power to help the service desk resolve incidents in future. One of the most effective ways of doing that is to put on the incident ticket what they actually did in order to uh, resolve the incident and restore the service. What we find they typically do is just put one word on the incident ticket, fixed, which isn't very helpful in terms of shift left and moving resolution down to the service desk. But the other reasons are that the service desk is firstly a, a, a lower cost resource and therefore the organisation, the IT department, will spend less fixing incidents if they're dealt with at first line, as well as protecting second line uh, from distractions to their primary objective. But of course, service desk is also the desk that owns the incident and maintains the relationship with the, the business user. And therefore, if they can fix it, uh, it's better for the user as well. And generally, it's quicker. Nice. Thanks for that. Um, okay, uh, number four is um, a difficulty of measuring incident impact. Yes, so according to leading frameworks such as ITIL, impact, uh, sorry, priority of an incident is based on impact and urgency. The challenge with the frameworks is they don't tell you how to measure impact. And if you start looking into this, there's at least six ways of measuring impact. 
The problem is most people tend to use number of users affected. And it's a proxy for impact, but it's not the only way of doing it. So it's one way, but let's look at the other ways. Impact could be based on the actual application or the criticality of a particular application, which of course may not have a large number of users. Uh, so the application and the number of users may not equate. Another way of measuring impact that we've hinted at earlier is the potential reputational damage to the company in the event that a relatively small incident were it to be recognised by um, the end customer, shall we say, as opposed to the internal organisation's users, that could also be considered to be high impact. Uh, another impact in certain industries, particularly finance, is the regulatory impact. So something that stops a report being submitted on time or accurately could have impacts way beyond the number of users affected. And then there's things like location, so potentially a head office or even a, a subsidiary office if it was part of a major project uh, might be considered to have a higher impact than a, a larger office with uh, perhaps a larger number of users. Uh, so what we're trying to do is just raise awareness amongst organisations that simply using the number of users affected may not be the best and certainly may not be the most accurate or effective way of measuring impact. Nice. Um, okay, and uh, number five, the, the final uh, common pitfall, um, is lack of negotiated service levels. So this is another topic close to my heart, that too many organisations are simply providing the service that they believe their business needs or their customers need without actually validating that by having service level agreements in place. And by this I mean you clearly will have service level agreements if you're IT support systems are outsourced and there's a third party service provider because the service level agreement is the basis of the contract. I'm talking where an organisation is insourced and the IT department's providing services to internal users. There's still no reason why that shouldn't be subject to a service level agreement. And the challenge, if it isn't, is that what typically happens is a user reports an incident to the service desk. And then once the phone's put down, they have two expectations that you may consider to be unrealistic, but this is a fact of life. The first expectation is that the only incident the service desk working, is working on is the one that user's just reported. We've held open days at service desks where users are staggered to find that the service desk is typically working on two or three hundred open incidents at any one time. So that's the first misconception. The second is that having reported the incident, it'll typically be fixed within half an hour. Now, most service level agreements would look at incidents by priority and even the most highest or the highest priority incident would typically have a four hour time to fix. Lower priority incidents, level two, three or four, sometimes we're talking five working days. The consequence of that is that once the users reported the incident and assumes it's being worked on, if they haven't heard back from the IT department or the service desk within about an hour, they'll find the service desk back and say, what's happened to my incident? Why hasn't it been fixed? Uh, only to discover that it's at the bottom of a pile of about 200. And what we're not doing is managing their expectations. And if we don't do that, then what we've seen in some organisations is as many as 70% of calls to the service desk are what we call chase calls. They're people ringing up saying, what's happened to my incident? Which actually is not adding value to either party. So the whole purpose of a service level agreement is to help both parties, both sides of the uh, service provider user relationship to understand 
what's a realistic time frame uh, based on incident priority that works for both parties because recognizing we don't have infinite resource to resolve every incident thanks john that's some really valuable information in there um some great common pitfalls uh, that we hope our listeners can, can hopefully learn from um thanks again for speaking with me today um and for sharing that, such valuable insights and that's it folks for episode one we hope you enjoyed it if you have any questions or feedback, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you and you'll find both uh, mine and John's contact details on the screen right now. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for tuning in to Keep Up With Claxon. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please subscribe and share with your network. Also, don't forget to follow Claxon on LinkedIn and Twitter for all the latest updates.